Anyway, uh, we are back in the confession, and uh, we're on um, chapter 30. Fascinating and a little uh, uncomfortable subject matter for today, and it's church censures, church <laughs> censures. So uh, why don't we pray, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for safety during the past month, travel, not just for Marla and me, but for lots of folks. We're grateful, too, that we could be here today and uh, study this confession. Uh, this confession, uh, of course, is an attempt to summarize your word. Pray, Lord, that you'll help us to appreciate that and to uh, be nourished in our study. In Christ's name, amen. So, who can tell me the difference between censorship and censorship? You're not alone. Lots of people don't. That's why I started with the question. If you censor someone, you quiet them up. If you censure them, you're disappointing them. Right, right. You're saying, you're saying uh, that's wrong or, or that's not something that we should uh, believe or something like that. So like when the Congress censures some member of the legislature, it's because something was done that was you know, in, you know, not ethical or in keeping with the work of a legislator. Um, so it's not just limited to the church, that's what I'm getting at. It's not like we, we invented the, the term and we're the only people who do it. <laughs> it's something that any organization will need to, uh, you know, as it grows and as time goes by, uh, employ. So if you, you know, even if you're in a company, you know, and you're working for a company and you maybe need to be disciplined because of your failure to get work in on time or do things according to the policy manual or something like that. You can be censured, you can say, get some kind of verbal reprimand. That's probably the way we, we speak about it today is a verbal reprimand. But uh, anyway, so that's, that's the nature of the term. Uh, and uh, here we have um, four paragraphs. What this is addressing is the subject of, of church discipline. Church discipline. One of the marks of the true church is church discipline. Now, when we hear the word discipline, what comes to mind? Punishment. <laughs> right? You know, it's sort of like, uh, you're going to get it now. You're going to be disciplined. Uh, but that's really, I think, uh, only one side of it. Discipline is simply you know, applying standards. So every time, say, an elder, a teaching elder, it teaches in the church, it's discipline. If you understand it in the correct way, it's saying this is the way to go. This is the way we live. Um, it's, it's maybe nonspecific. It's not like I'm picking on, you know, Jonathan or something today. Jonathan, you need to, you know, it's more or less, these are the standards that we live by. These are the things we believe. And it's a call to the, to the, the, uh, you know, the people who are hearing the teaching to comply, right? It's, not, it's, it's authoritative, in other words. It's not like, hey, you can take it, you can leave it, it's just my opinion. Just your opinion, man, you know, that kind of thing. It's not. We're talking about something that's authoritative in character. Now, a teaching elder can get things wrong, and in such an instance, he needs to be what? Corrected, disciplined, <laughs> right? So, uh, and there are ways that this is done. There are, you know, accepted ways to go about that. Uh, and they're based, you know, on scripture. So we'll, we'll get into some of that in a minute. So it's, these are the standards. So like when we say discipling the nations, did you notice that there's a similarity in the sound of the word discipline and disciple? It's not a coincidence. They have the same root. Discipling is disciplining. Getting dis so like, like if I were to say to you, you know, if you want to win, you know, the uh, marathon, you don't need to do anything. You eat donuts every day. Lay around, never go running. Just show up. And if you're lucky, you win, <laughs> right? Uh, who was that gal that won the Boston Marathon years ago who cheated? Do you, do you remember this? She got on the subway, and like she got off, got off at the end of the race, and, and she ran across the finish line. And you looked at her and you say, "No way!" 
You just looked at her physically and you just said, no way. But she was the first to cross the line. Everybody cheered and gave her, and then they discovered, no, no, she cheated. <laughs> so, you know, if you gotta discipline yourself, right? Self-discipline is when you apply standards to yourself, you deny yourself, you know, you've got some kind of goal that you're trying to achieve, uh, you're pursuing in a, maybe a, in a, a, some great, you know, high, you know, noble purpose. You know, you gotta get your act together. You gotta discipline yourself. So discipline has to be kept within that framework because if we just think about it, ooh, you're in trouble now. You're being disciplined. Ah, oh, that nasty bunch of elders always disciplining. No, actually, it's a, it's a good thing. And then, you know, sometimes it does get more serious, you know, and more specific and so forth. And so that's the framework within which to think about. Any thoughts or questions about that? How do you, say, say there was an elder, what would you do? If there was an elder who got out of line? Yeah. Well, the first thing you do is you, you, you know, say to the elder, are you sure that's right? You know, or whatever. Then uh, if the elder can hear you, great. You know, and say, you know, you're right, Molly. I, should, I shouldn't have said that or I shouldn't have done that or something like that. Uh, if that doesn't work, then you go to other elders and say, this is something that happened. I'd like to let you know. And then it's the responsibility of the other elders at that point to work on the situation. Now they'll look into it. Maybe they'll agree with you, maybe they won't. You know, if it's something that's of ser a really serious nature, then they'll have to address it. Call that man to repentance, that kind of thing. If it gets kind of beyond that, let's say, you know, you uh, have a, a judgment by the session that you don't agree with, you can appeal to a higher court, that's the presbytery. And if you're not happy with that, then you can even go higher. There's a Supreme Court in the in Presbyterian circles, and that's the General Assembly. And there's a standing committee that reviews the cases. So anyway, that's how it works. We're going to take you all the way to the General Assembly. Supreme Court. And of course, there's a higher court than that, right? What's the highest court? The Lord. You know, and the Lord will address all the things that we uh, fail to address appropriately, right? Other thoughts or questions? Okay, well, let's take a look here uh, at the uh, first paragraph. The Lord Jesus, as king and head of his church, hath therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers, distinct from the civil magistrate. Okay, now, uh, in case you're wondering where to find the confession, if you have a hymnal, it's in the back, and we're in chapter 30. Can't remember, does anybody know the page number for anyone? 866, 866. So, um, this is a, a, a a statement that I think would be, you know, pretty straightforward and has lots of biblical support. Um, the Lord Jesus, uh, as King and head of His Church, so okay, that's something that a Christian should be able to uh, confess, agree with, right? Uh, now here's the the place where a lot of people demur. <laughs> Hath therein appointed a government? So. In other words, there are men to whom the government of the church has been entrusted. So are you familiar with uh, the terms teaching elder and ruling elder? Most of you are familiar with those terms. Uh, ruling elder, uh, it rules, <laughs> right? Now a ruling elder should be able to teach, but we're not looking to ruling elders for that uh, as much as we are the other matter, which is ruling. And then the teaching elder, of course, is charged with teaching. That doesn't mean that the teaching elder doesn't have a role in the rule of the church. But these are, you know, a couple of terms that we use to distinguish between uh, roles with regard to elders. Uh, now, when the elders uh, meet, it's called the session. Can you imagine why? Court is now in session. 
literally that's what it's about. It's a court. And the way the government of a Presbyterian church works is that uh, the uh, government of the church is held uh, by the body of elders. It's not like, you know, we're all just sort of like on our own, shooting from the hip, lone rangers out there, you know, doing stuff without, you know, talking to anybody. Uh, the judgments of the, of the session are, are deliberative. In other words, we deliberate, we talk about it, we think about it, we seek to apply scriptural standards to situations. That's the primary thing. But then there are matters where wisdom just has to you know, be called for. What about this particular situation? What about this particular person? What is that, who's that person going through? That kind of stuff. So there's a lot of you know, work at applying the, the rule of the church to particular situations. And, that, and that's sometimes where you know, elders can charitably disagree. You know, say, I think it should be done this way. I think it should be done that way. And then you have to like work it out. Sometimes vote even. <laughs> Sometimes not even have a unanimous vote. <laughs> you know? And then when it's the decision of the session, you know, everybody is called to support the decision of the session, even if maybe at a particular point there's been some disagreement. Now, there are other church forms of church government, right? Can you think of some others? That's the Presbyterian way, which is the biblical way, of course. Tongue in cheek. I, I believe that, but it's one of the ways you like to dig at Baptists and stuff like that. Can you think of the other forms? There are essentially two other forms. Yep. Congregational. congregational. So in a congregational uh, church, the laity as a body uh, is the, you know, the, the, you could say the session. It's the, the group that exercises authority. Um, now, when it comes to the practical, so when you think about congregational churches, what, what are some, maybe I mentioned Baptists. Baptists uh, employ a congregational form of government. Obviously, congregationalists, which you don't see much out here, but back in New England, they're like, every town green has got a congregational church. There's, there's the... Presbyterian church that was founded in 1835 that I used to belong to. Well, that's Presbyterian, which is a... Yeah, we do a lot more praying and singing than they, than they did. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we do, but I'm focused more on the government as opposed to, the, to, to like the worship. As, as far as I knew, every, everybody sang two or three songs, and that was it. There, well, there wasn't any government. Well, maybe not. <laughs> but the name Presbyterian uh, implied that there, at least at a, at a certain formal level, there was. Okay. Yeah. So you might not have ever noticed it. You might not have even known who your elders were. That can happen. And so, now, in our situation, we make a practice of letting you know. There are different ways that we do that. Uh, can you think of the ways that we, we kind of sort of send the signal, these are the elders? Communion, communion right? The, the elders administer communion, right? Leading the, Leading the liturgy, right. And these are great practices. And what it does is it gets the elders in front of you and you can say, okay, that's why you need to talk to, this is the person who has been entrusted with the authority of exercising, you know, rule in the church and teaching in the church. And it's good, it's good to do it that way. Now sometimes uh, churches, particularly when they get fairly large, uh, drift away from that practice, even Presbyterian churches, because what ends up happening is you end up with like a professional class of worship leaders. I don't know if you've noticed this, but you'll have actually the worship pastor, you know, or the music pastor or whatever. But they're all teaching elders, generally speaking. And what ends up happening is you sort of lose sight of who the ruling elders are, unless there's some extra effort made to get, you know, uh, you in touch with those. You know, sometimes you'll have like churches where you'll have um, an approach that divides the congregation up and says, okay, this particular elder is in charge of this group of people and they get to know them. You know, you can have different approaches, but at a fundamental level, the government of the church is uh, conducted in that way. So you got the congregational. Now, there are some jokes uh, with regard to congregational government. It's actually papal. So the pastor is like the pope. <laughs> and whatever he says goes, really. 
unless there's just a really strong beacon board or something. Um, so what ends up happening is not necessarily what is said to have happened or what's said to be the case. I'm having a little fun. I, that's what I like. I like to tease my Baptist friends that way. You, know, you don't believe in one pope, you believe in many popes. <laughs> anyway, um, now when you think about uh, Episcopal government, what's that? Well, Episcopalian, again, this is, you see that the different denominations are denoted by their forms of government. But Episcopacy would be the rule of bishops. So, you know, imagine this. Imagine uh, you, we were, say, Methodists or Episcopalians, something like that, and Bishop came in and said, well, that pastor's done. He's gone. I got a new one for you. Happens all the time in those settings. Um, where, you know, you might not even have any say in the matter. Now, many times there are provisions made for a voice for the laity, but it gives you a sense of how the different approaches work. You know, Episcopacy, Presbyterianism, Congregationalism. But one of the things to keep in mind as we read the Westminster Standards is we had different polities represented in the deliberation. So this is meant to be all-inclusive. So it doesn't get into the specifics. So there were, I, oh, there. So there were, uh, you know, Episcopal, sort of people who believed in Episcopal government, people who believed in congregational government, people who believed in Presbyterian government at the Westminster Assembly. Does that catch you by surprise? It's simply the case. And sometimes you actually had people moving between so Jonathan Edwards is a famous example. Um, he was, and this is interesting to, to note, if you, if you go back east, there were what were, no, were known as comity agreements between the different uh, colonies. So uh, Connecticut was congregational. So New England, generally speaking, was, that was congregational territory. And that's why you don't find historically old Presbyterian churches there. It was not their territory. The territory for the Presbyterians was uh, where? Any guesses? Mid-Atlantic states. So it would be Pennsylvania, uh, New Jersey, um, I think Delaware. And then if you go further south to get into Virginia, it's the Anglicans. Those, that's where those churches were established. So what happened with Jonathan Edwards is he was a congregational minister, but of reformed you know, he was reformed, uh, congregational, uh, congregational minister. And um, he uh, served a couple of uh, significant churches in the New England region, in Connecticut and Massachusetts. And then he was uh, recruited to head up a college down in New Jersey, which was run by the Presbyterians. Uh, was, it, was it New College? Is that what they called it? Or was it... Well, it was, it was originally the log cabin school, but I think by the time he got there, it had gotten out of the cabin. <laughs> and, you know, they had a, kind of a more established setup. But uh, it was what we call, what's, it's known as Princeton today. So Jonathan Edwards was brought in to be the president of what became Princeton. Uh, but he died shortly after uh, taking his position there uh, and agreeing to operate like a Presbyterian. Um, uh, did anybody, does anybody know how Jonathan Edwards died? Smallpox. Smallpox. Vaccine. There you go. He died from the vaccine. So he was a champion for science. I, I, I made a meme about that during COVID. <laughs> An early martyr for science. But, um, but anyway, he, he felt like it was, you know, he was a very ed well-educated man and was actually, a, he contributed uh, scientific uh, articles to the, I think, uh, was it the Royal Society? Um, did some fascinating analysis of spiders. So if, like when you, th when you hear about, you know, Jonathan Edwards' il uh, spider illustrations, and there are a number of them, particularly the one in Sinners in the Hands of an Ang Angry God, it's because he loved spiders. He was fascinated with them. 
Now, when we think about it, we're like, ooh, gross. <laughs> but he was particularly intrigued by, by balloon spiders, you know, these spiders that send up uh, their webs to catch the breeze and then fly to a new place. So he studied those and wrote, it, wrote a, an article on them. You can actually look it up. But he was a pretty bright guy, and he was a believer in the scientific method, and he thought, well, I'm, if I'm going to call my my members to, to receive this vaccine to protect the congregation from small, I mean, it's a serious disease. I mean, we're not talking about the flu. We're talking about, you know, something that killed lots and lots of people. And this was a new experimental technique. And he said, do it to me first. And then he died. Gave him too much. But anyway, how did I get there? Basically, the idea is that people can move between the different forms of government if they're con congenial to that. And he was. Yeah, Keegan. What, what were the biggest reasons why people lived? Or, well, or, or was there like a progression of starting at congregational and then moving? Okay. Well, in Edward's case, that wasn't really the story. He, um, he was uh, a controversial figure in his time in New England um, for more than one reason. One of the reasons being he actually wanted to apply church discipline to people who were communing members, and the church that he was at, Stoddard's Church, didn't like that. Uh, so he got run out of town and became a missionary to the Indians in western Massachusetts. And it was while he was kind of out there in the middle of nowhere. But he was famous because of his involvement with the First Great Awakening and so forth. Um, and he'd written things that had been published you know, in, in the you know, United Kingdom, Britain. So he, he was well known, but he was out of favor in the congregational world. Now it's fascinating because today they just, uh, even Yale, like if you go to Yale, his picture is everywhere. There's a Jonathan Edwards College at Yale. And you go into the Barnes and Noble bookstore and his face is up there on the wall. They are publishing his works, his complete works. And everything he wrote condemns everything they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> which is another kind of fascinating thing when you think about it. But anyway, so he was recruited because of his, kind of the combination of his strong reformed theological and sort of uh, significance and integrity and stature. Uh, and it was a, at that time, you know, it was a kind of an, it was a, it was a move out of, the congregational world because he had fallen into disfavor there. Yeah. Well, I think another, maybe another way to get it, the answer to that question is, you know, Calvin has this phrase where he says, Presbyterianism is not of the essay of the church, but of the bene essay, which, you know, not of the, not yeah, of the but, uh, good essay. Yeah, in other words, he's recognizing that it's not as clearly revealed yeah as like the trinity or the resurrection right? right and so that's part of the reason why people there's these different forms is it's not as it's not as explicit as it might as other doctrines might be and i think we need to re kind of remember that when we're when we're interfacing with people and that it's more of the good order this is helpful uh but maybe not maybe not as fundamental as the things we recite in the creed yeah, I think most people understand that, or most people. So, like when I joke with people about you know the different forms of government, um, I do it with a smile, you know, a twinkle in my eye, and that kind of thing. But I, I really do believe it. I believe this is the biblical form of government, and the reason I do is because it's of its clear roots in the Old Testament, the judges, the elders, the people. One of the reasons why Presbyterianism really took off in certain cultures is because of that. The Koreans uh, could relate to the Presbyterian form of government because it was the basic way things were done in Korea. And the same thing with Malawi in different parts of the world where you see Presbyterianism really just take off because you, ha you have native cultures that are elder-led. So I remember one time we had, a, we had a, some people from Malawi in my last church. Malawi is, is where David Livingston uh, you know, the story of David Livingston, the missionary, you know, Mr. Livingston or Dr. Livingston, I presume, you know, that story. Anyway, so he was the founding, he was the founder of the, of the Presbyterian Church of Malawi, which is the state church of Malawi. So the entire royal family, 
the bandas uh, are very committed Presbyterians, whether or not they're Christians. <laughs> I, I, I had a lot of dealings with the bandas, uh, so I had some bandas in my church. And, uh, and basically, they got to America, looked in the phone book, Presbyterian, that's where we go. And we had a, we had a disciplinary situation with one of the sons-in-law. It was a son-in-law? Or anyway, this extended clan, the Banda clan. And the elders said, you need to stop doing that. And he said, yes, most amazing thing I've ever seen. Openness to discipline. <laughs> it was just this like, of course, you're the elders. This is what you have the authority to say and, and to, to, to do. Anyway, I miss that. <laughs> um, now, one of the things here in this statement is there's a distinction between, made between uh, the civil magistrate and church officers. So, you know, I think that's an important thing to note. Um, there are, uh, a there's a division of responsibility. You know, what we see in Romans is the state is entrusted with what? Power of the sword. Yeah, power of the sword, the administration of justice, punishment, literally kind of the physical, you know, doing whatever needs to be done to make sure that the peace is kept. Uh, the church is not entrusted with the sword. Uh, our our means of discipline is ministerial. Uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, proclamation uh, that it's... Uh, now there is, we're gonna get into, um, you know, the keys uh, in a minute. And the, one of the things that that's referring to is communion, uh, you, know, you know, participation in the sacraments. But, um, so in other words, uh, you don't go to jail uh, if the, the elders, you know, are disciplining you. You might experience other kinds of, of, you know, sort of repercussions from discipline, but there's a distinction between these two things. Um, one, one, of, one of the ways sometimes it's put is the difference between sin and crime. I don't know if you've, if you've heard that distinction. That's a, I think it's helpful. So a crime would be something that, say, a legislature has uh, established as, you know, the, the standard, or they've established a law, and then you break that law that's a crime has been committed, and then, you know, there needs to be uh, some act, act, action to address that. Uh, sin is a broader category. So there are lots of things that fall under the category of sin, but don't uh, get you to jail. Can you think of some? Well, that'll get you to jail. <laughs> uh, lust. Lust, right. I think that's an excellent one because, you know, uh, that's something that uh, as Christians we are to, through this exercise of self-discipline, address and it can find uh, expression in ways that require some kind of, um, you know, in the, in the congregation, uh, some kind of formal discipline, right? But at the same time, it's not a crime. Um, you know, it's a crime if you act upon your lust in, a, in an illegal way, say in rape or whatever, right? But it, that's a different thing. If you did something that your group of people were against, uh, what would happen to that person? Well, I suppose it depends on the group and, and the way they've established their rules for how they uh, discipline themselves. So, like, if you're like a member of like the Lions Club. There's an organization of business people, and there's probably some standards that they have. I've never been in the Lions Club, but I imagine you have to pay dues every year. If you don't pay your dues, you're probably reminded, and if they have to keep reminding you, they have to tell you, well, you're no longer part of the Lions Club, that kind of thing. Other thoughts or questions? Yeah, Gino. Um, the word distinct, how distinct is distinct? Like, 
are we to like keep them separate at all costs, or are they allowed to like, overlap? Yeah, in certain situations, and that's an ongoing conversation. So, for example, one of the challenges that, say, a pastor has is it's a, a, a practice that's got a long um, history, you know, that you keep confidences as a pastor. So, um, you know, somebody comes to you as a pastor and says, Pastor, this is something that I did. I'm ashamed of it. I've asked God to forgive me. Would you please help me with this? You know, generally speaking, um, a pastor keeps that to himself. So, by the way, this is an interesting thing. A lot of folks assume I tell my wife everything. There are many things I don't tell my wife, usually about other people. And why? Because knowledge is a burden, right? Like, so, you know, if you, if you have to sort of keep it to yourself and work at it, that's a challenge. Uh, but sometimes, um, you know, it just makes another person's life easier just not to know. Yeah, so another question about distinct. If you have, let's say, a sheriff's deputy in your congregation, would it be a conflict of interest to have that sheriff's deputy also be an elder? That's a great question. I've never thought about it. Another vibe. <laughs> but that's, that's one of those things that we'd have to deliberate. <laughs> I think, uh, well, this gets back to Jiho's point. There are some things that really, as an elder, even as a pastor, the state requires me to report. So if I know about, say, sexual crime, then the state says your confidence rule doesn't apply. Now, I might be so committed to that that I'm, I defy the state. But then the problem is, is where is the, just, the, the scriptural justification for that? You know? So there's, there's a challenge there. So we've got you know, professional standards that we're expected to, to, to uh, submit to. You know, and one of those is you don't blabber mouth about everybody's problems. You know, you keep those, if someone entrusts something to you, you keep it to yourself. As best you can, but then there are these matters where you're like, okay, he's got an atomic bomb and he's about to blow up New York. He confided to me. <laughs> Do I turn him in? <laughs> you know, those kinds of questions. Yeah, Keith. I guess just in regards to scriptural justifications for that, specific thing, First Corinthians 6, and lawsuits against believers. That seems to kind of connotate <coughs> afterward the, the sexual immorality and those kinds of things. Does, does this area help provide borders, or is it kind of... Well, I think you know, what we're concerned with uh, is the safety of people, for one thing. So, you know, when we think about lawsuits between believers, let's say a couple of guys uh, start a business, they have a falling out, uh, they're both believers, but they hate each other's guts now. I've seen this. <laughs> don't want to be in the same room with each other. And they're suing each other. I think that's what Paul's addressing when he's talking about lawsuits between believers. He's, you know, this is embarrassing, guys. We, we, we ought to... Uh, demonstrate to the world that we can work these things out. Now, you know, maybe you need some arbitration, maybe you need some, maybe you need the elders to come in and say, this is what's just and this is how it should go, that kind of thing. Um, but I think that is different than, you know, the ax murderer problem or the, you know, the psycho, uh, you, know, you know, the sex psycho guy or something like that. You know, in that case, we need some help. We need to bring in some authorities. So let me give you a real example. So when I was in Cambridge, uh, we had all sorts of adventures with all sorts of people. <laughs> and I remember there was this one gal named Monique. And Monique uh, had uh, called the church in desperation because she said that she was in danger. Uh, and she was in a part of town when she called and it was a dangerous part of town. She said she was in a drug house. And she knew that some, there were some people in the church. You know, she knew some names of some families in the church. So I was the one who picked up the phone. And I said, well, I mean, how would she know who those people are? I, you know, I need to get over there and help her out. 
Two months later, and several thousand dollars of stolen goods later, we had to bring in the police. And was she a genuine believer? She didn't behave like one. <laughs> she claimed to be one. But there were some crimes that were committed, and there were people at risk, physical risk, because of her presence. Was she a criminal? I think she was. But again, there was no court decision, you know. I think, uh, well, it's a long story, but anyway. But I, I, I've got lots of stories like that. <laughs> so, Naomi Lindjiho. Yep. Um, what would you say is the difference between sin and iniquity? Iniquity. Interesting. Well, now we're dealing with the subtleties of words, and I think, uh, you know, as we, you know, we look at, say, the, the, the roots of the words, we could find some, dis some ways to make distinctions. Um, in a way, there's, there's you know, some overlap. We've got a, kind of the synonym issue here. But every word has its own, uh, I think, significance, so there are subtle differences. So here's just off the top of my head. Now, I think iniquity uh, is looking at sort of the character of the thing that's done, and sin is the fact that it's forbidden. In other words, the law forbids it. So iniquity uh, is dealing with impurity. There's something iniquitous, impure about the action. Uh, that's so you're you're actually kind of examining the action more. I think when you say iniquity, when you say sin, you're just saying this is something that's prohibited by God's law. Does that make sense? Just I'm trying to be Mr. Dictionary on the t on my feet here. <laughs> Well, let me go Jiho, and then I'll get back to you, Brian. Yeah, Jiho. Going back to my earlier question, I think you were running for city council, right? Yeah. So there was a possible conflict of interest if you had one. Possible, yeah. That, and in those cases, you would say I recuse myself. So let's say if somebody from my congregation came up uh, and there was obviously, you know, uh, you know po a possible um, self-dealing or something like that, then you know, you'd have to recuse yourself. From the church office or the city office? Well, in the, in the city office, uh, I would say it would be the city office, and it would be uh, based on just that particular matter, because you would say, I have a connection to this person, and so therefore it's not right for me to uh, exercise you know, judicial authority in this area. Like a, like you know like a judge if 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 a, if a child is you know caught you know in some crime you know he says I can't be the judge it's my kid <laughs> I think the same thing would be true for like a, a pastor I can't be involved in this I'm I'm that guy's pastor. I was just going to say you know Gio was asking this question about distinction between civil and ecclesiastical government. And I think the reason why this statement is so important is because if you go back to chapter 24, they are, even in the American version, advocating for a Christian state. And yet they're, they're saying the Christian state should not intrude upon, which, which happens over and over in the history of the church, where, where the king wants to make decisions about who gets excommunicated or, or who gets whatever. And so, I mean, that's part of, this was, this was Calvin's whole struggle in the, in the 16th century is trying to, trying to set up a separate church government that is separate from the, the civil magistrate so that they can deal with sin in the church and not make everything a crime, right. but also deal with it, you know, yeah. and, and, and have actual discipline. Yeah. Before it becomes a crime. Yeah, and we have lots of material to draw on in the New Testament to do that. It's not like it was just Calvin cooking something up. But I think that the challenge that we face in our time, because the term Christian nationalism gets thrown around a lot, and people are like, what's this all about? The problem is, is that there is going to be a governing philosophy. It's just the way it is. There's going to be a governing philosophy. You might call it secular, you might call it neutral, you might call it whatever you want to call it. It's a governing philosophy. And what we're experiencing now is the failure of our governing philosophy. And then the question is, what, what replaces it? And I think that's what, 
and this is from everywhere. And it's, um, it's, uh, it's not even like a, it's, it, the subject, the, the only thing that people are disagreeing about right now is whether or not the, you know, sort of uh, uh, the governing philosophy that we currently have in place is what the founders is, is sort of intended for us to have in place. Uh, and then, uh, if, if not, what do we do about it? So, any thoughts or, yeah, Kevin? Well, I know Brian actually kind of alluded to this, but the, you know, the questions of, uh, like, could a could deputy be an elder, or could a, could a pastor sit on a, on a city council? Those, I think those are questions that were probably more contemplated by the divines at this, this time. And Brian mentioned we have, we have a chapter 23 in American version, American Presbyterianism, Americanized that, you know, put, put an American political view on the chapter of the civil magistrate. But even in that, there's um, there's an acknowledgement in even the American version of the chapter 23 that it is lawful, um, and I think even commended to Christians to, um, to serve as magistrates. And that, that shifting between spheres of authority is very comfortable and very native to us when we see rightly ordered household government and then church government. And we actually see it not only comfortably done, but scripturally required for men to lead in the church to have rightly administered government in their own homes. That's just laid down in plain, plain scripture. And so that passing between those spheres, you know, I'm, I, you know, I have a certain authority in my home that I don't have in this church, and going between those, I think, gives us some um, some pattern that we can see uh, moving into other spheres. You know, I have a certain position within uh, the workplace that I don't have, you know, in you know other spheres, and so I, I think it's important for Christians to converse with this and to get comfortable with being a Christian in the workplace, in your political involvement, whatever kind of level that may be, because I think the unfortunate side effect is we kind of cease to be Christians when we become, you know, involved in politics or when we go into the workplace. And that's, I think that's a loss of, of, uh, of, our, of our calling. Yeah, and I, I think that that's good. I'm, I think, though, uh, maybe Jiho is getting at maybe officers. You know the, the you know so like when you said Christians serving as ma you know in the role of the magistrate. That's, now I'm of the conviction that it's fine for officers as well. So uh, I mean we've got John Winthrop, you know, uh, who was a Presbyterian teaching elder, uh, who was one of the signers of the you know the Declaration of Independence. And um, by the way, I told you that I had an opportunity to like get John Winthrop's signature. It was up for. It's like the it's like the hardest signature to get. So there are people who collect signatures of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, and 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 believe it or not, John Winthrop is the hardest one to get. So I was in a I was in an auction. I lost, but but anyway, uh, but he was a pastor. He was a Presbyterian pastor, and very he was actually considered one of the most important. Um, uh, Representatives in Congress, in the sense that he was on like a, he was like on like tons of committees and was behind the scenes working and trying to make things. So he had a lot of he had a high he, had, he was re regarded very highly by his fellow legislators. Any other thoughts? These are great questions. Yeah, Mark. Just adding on what Camden was saying, I don't believe that myself as an elder of this church has a right to excommunicate any of my children, mm. personally, just yeah. individually, or to remove them from the Lord's table right. as well. So you're keeping a distinction between right. what your jurisdiction right. is, as a what, what that is as an elder, versus what it is as a father. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And two, you know, this would be something that the session would have to judge, you know, make a judgment about. And my, th my thought is, is that if, uh, you know, uh, an elder's child is uh, being disciplined, then the session 
should probably get some, some statement from the father, who is an elder, but ask him to recuse himself uh, when the judgment is made. Anyway, um, we've gotten a lot, of, a lot of traction out of number one here, and we've got three more to go. <laughs> okay, so let me just read this one. We're definitely not going to get through this one today, uh, but we'll pick it up next week. Two, to these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed. By virtue thereof, whereof, they have power respectively to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censures, and to open it unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel, and by abs uh, absolution from censures as occasion shall requ uh, require. Now, this one's a thorny one uh, because there's a lot going on here that maybe people are bringing to this maybe from another church tradition. So like when you see the, say, the, the papal uh, shield, you know, the papal uh, you know, signification, the, you know, the heraldry of the papacy, what does it have on it? The keys, right? The keys. So this is you know, sort of a matter of dispute. <laughs> who, who holds the keys? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then what are the keys uh, to? Is it just like, I don't like you today. You're going to hell. You know, is it that? Is it just sort of this arbitrary judgment that has nothing to do with, say, the rest of the church's work? Or are the keys some things that are being alluded to. Any thoughts? Well, we'll have, have you go first and then we'll get to Richard. Okay. okay, Richard? Well, maybe we ought to define the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so we would say that... We're talking about the visible and invisible church. Yeah, okay, now here we go. Okay, now we're having fun. So if we go back to, if we go back to uh, what we have uh, in the confession, you know, we've got a visible and uh, invisible. Visible is what we can see, and the invisible is what only God knows, right? I think that's a fairly safe uh, way to put it. Now, um, when we're talking about our work as elders, we're, we're here, we're in time, you know, we're not uh, able to... Um, we don't have, we don't know everything we'd like to know. By the way, I've got a, I'm, I'm, tonight's uh, evening service, I'm going to be sharing with you some of my work on risk. I'm writing a book on the theology of risk, which is really an interesting thing because I don't know if I've ever come across any pastor or any theologian who's addressed the subject of risk. But uh, risk is about information, what you know and you don't know. So, you're familiar with, I'm, gonna, I'm giving away a little bit of my thunder right now. You ever hear the term paralysis of analysis? These are people who can't act because they can never get enough information. The problem is, is you never get enough information. Human beings can't know everything. So you have to make decisions on partial information. It's not a if. It's a must. <laughs> yes, Frank. Well, I think the question's a really significant one, uh, the one that the gentleman was asking, because... This is Richard. <laughs> in chapter 25, yeah. the divines identify the kingdom with the visible church. Right. Yeah. And so they're saying that the visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, probably alluding to the wheat and the tares, kingdom parable, right? There's, there's people who are unsaved inside the church. Um, and, it, it, you know, you asked the question, you know, they're quoting directly from Scripture, John 20, retaining sins, remitting sins. They're quoting from Matthew 16, I give you the keys of the kingdom. So there's a lot of biblical material here oh, yeah. in this. My, my only, the reason for my, dis, my discourse on risk and knowledge is that uh, we don't know the wheat and we don't know the tares. We have some material to work with, don't get me wrong, but there's going to be surprises uh, on the final day, right? You're going to be like, I can't believe it. I always thought he was the best Christian around. That guy getting in? You're kidding me. 
that kind of thing. I'm having a little fun with this. But the, but the point is, is we just don't know. Now, we, we do the best we can. This gets back to another talk. We do the best we can <laughs> with the information we have. And yeah. I brought up the question because I think it's very commonly misunderstood yeah. when that when it, either in, in this particular context in, the, in the, the confession or in the scriptures, we think that that means the invisible church, the, kingdom, right. the keys of the kingdom. And, that, and that's obviously what the Catholic Church taught. Right. Well, here's, a, here's, a, here's something I'd like us to consider. When we talk about the keys, what are we talking about? Talking about the gospel. We're talking about the sacraments, you know, um, and we have the power to withhold those things, right? To say you don't have access to that. This is it's not minor league stuff. This is pretty serious stuff. We believe in the real presence, so there is a sense in which there is, uh, you know, real spiritual consequences to church discipline. Um, we you know, and and. In the meantime, you know, what is the, what is the goal of church discipline? Get out all those people you don't like? <laughs> right, repentance. What we're trying to uh, see happen, what we're doing in the exercise of church discipline in this particular case, like when we excommunicate or when we censure somebody, we want, we want those people to come to their senses. We want those people to repent. We want them to get right with God, to confess their sins. That's the goal. This isn't the final judgment. This is the court. This is the lower court. There's a, there's a, a really the supreme court, the high court, which is the heavenly court, and then that court, all the cases will be reviewed. <laughs> if you get my drift, so the Lord has the final say at things. But it doesn't mean we don't have authority. It doesn't mean we don't have responsibilities. It doesn't mean we don't do serious work. We do. Now, when it comes to church discipline, I've been involved in more cases than I care to remember. I mean, I've been involved in the discipline of pastors, the excommunication of pastors. I've been involved in, you know, multiple cases within church settings, you know, over the years. It's, it's the most unpleasant part of the work, you know. Um, and it's just a challenge. But you just have to suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as the saying goes, and just do the work. It just needs to be done. Any other thoughts on, on, on this before we wrap up uh, this? We'll re re return to this, this because there's a lot here to think about. Okay, well, why don't we pray? Father, thank you for um, helping us as we've reflected on uh, the confession this morning. Uh, there are many challenging matters to consider, um, many things in the world that we live in where we wish it was easier and, and uh, to understand matters and, and, and courses of action were clearer. Uh, sometimes uh, we have a hard time uh, knowing what to do, particularly when it comes to how to uh, be uh, you know, helpful uh, and uh, a blessing to those around us. And this is true for, for elders as well. And we ask you, Lord, in particular for our own session, that you give us wisdom and grace and, uh, uh, and the work of the, the ministry as, as the elders uh, work hard to govern the church uh, in a way that uh, you want them to do so. In Christ's name, amen.